You are listening to the East Point Church Sermon Podcast. We're a church that exists to glorify God as a gospel community that is growing in faith and reaching the world. From wherever you are listening, we hope that you are encouraged and challenged by today's sermon. Good morning, East Point Church. How's everybody doing? Doing well today? Good to be with you. Go ahead and open up your Bibles, please, to Mark chapter 11. You're going to want to open up your Bible as we follow along verse by verse and see what God is going to say to us today. And so I'm just curious, as you open up your Bibles, as you turn in the scriptures, I have a question for you. And I promise you that this is a safe space. So you can be honest with me. You can tell me your honest opinion. And nobody outside of this room will know except for social media and the podcast, okay? And so how many of you in this room enjoy a good Western film? Well, okay. All right, my people. We're okay. I thought maybe this would be like Cowboys Anonymous, where we just didn't want to admit that we were into cowboys. Okay, so you enjoy a good Western? Clint Eastwood? Okay, yeah, you get the growl and the eyebrow, okay. How many of you enjoy a little tombstone? Well, yeah, all right, you guys get it, man. There, is few, there are a few things more exciting than a good old cowboy film, right? Come on, people, right? Where the, guy, the cowboy goes after the bad guys, and so it's exciting because he's got his boots and his spurs and his trusty steed, and, and usually the film always begins where he's locking up just your average Joe Schmo petty thief, you know? And so we start off with a little layup, a little exciting one. Yeah, Cowboy's got a bad guy. But eventually what makes the, the movie exciting, what makes the film action-packed, is that the cowboy eventually sets his sights not just on like a petty criminal, not just on like the, the class clown of the town, but he evolves, he moves on from your average bad guy to an outlaw. Woo, you know what I'm talking about, right? The outlaw and Usually his name has something like Bandit in front of it, like it's a title, you know, Bandit Bob, whatever it is. And so if you graduate from petty thief to full-blown outlaw, you have the privilege of eventually getting your face on a poster. You know what I'm talking about, right? Every Western has it. Eventually the outlaw is put on a poster. And at the top of this poster are three famous words. It says, he is wanted, dead or alive. Dead or alive. Think about it. What did you do in your life? How bad do you have to be wanted that the authorities say, I don't even care if this guy's got a pulse. Just bring me his body. Have you ever stopped to think about it? I don't care if it's alive. I don't care if he's dead. I don't care if it's hot. I don't care if it's cold. I just want him here. Regardless of the pulse, as long as the body is here, it counts. Dead or alive. Dead or alive. As I was reading this, this passage this week, as I was preparing this message, I had this thought. I thought to myself, why is it so easy for us? Why is it so easy for you? Why is it so easy for me to settle for a dead or alive religion? You ever think about that? Why is it so easy, right? Where, as long as I go to church, as long as I check the boxes, as long as I'm doing my spiritual to-do list, as long as I can tell my mom and get her off my back, I went to the place on Sunday morning, right? Why is it so easy to just settle for dead or alive religion? Doesn't matter if it's alive, doesn't matter if there's a pulse, doesn't matter if it's hot, doesn't matter if it's cold, regardless of what's going on in my chest, if I'm there, it counts. It's just easy for us, isn't it? To go through the motions, 
to play the game and to live what I call a dead or alive religion. And so as we dive in this morning, how do you know if your faith is dead or alive? How do you know if your church is dead or alive? How do you know if the religion and the spirituality that you're living at, how do you know if, if what you're engaging in actually matters and, and, is, and is alive? What if you have encountered dead religion in your life and you've experienced dead religious leaders? Well, then the question for you is then what then? What should you do when you come into contact with dead religion? Should you just walk away from it all? For the next few moments, we're going to see Jesus, friends. We are going to see Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and he is in rare form, okay? Jesus is coming, and he's going to talk to us about dead or alive religion. And I'm just going to give you a full warning here. Jesus is angry, okay? Jesus, this is the most direct we've seen him. This is the most frank. He is going to step onto the biggest platform of his day, and he's got some gutsy things to say. And by the time he's done, you will be able and I will be able to determine whether or not our religion is dead or alive. And maybe you're here this morning, you're one of my friends, and you go, man, I don't even necessarily believe this thing. Like, I'm not particularly interested to hear what Jesus has to say. Hey, I get it. You're welcome here, and that's cool. But hang with me, because I think you might find today's passage particularly interesting. If you're here this morning and you have ever said in your life, if you've ever pointed out the hypocrisy of faith-filled people, if you have ever bemoaned the abuses of religion, hang with me, because I think you may have more in common with Jesus than you even realize, all right? So here we go. We're going to see what God is going to say to us this morning, starting in Mark chapter 11, verse 11. Speaking of Jesus, it says this, And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Let's pause right there. First thing I want to point out in this passage is that the appearance of fruitfulness can be deceptive. The appearance of fruitfulness can be deceptive. And so Jesus, he arrives in Jerusalem, but I want you to notice where he goes. Because his destination, like we saw last week, his destination is not just Jerusalem in general. He's coming to a particular spot. There is a particular place of interest that he put into his GPS. So when he arrives at Jerusalem, he goes immediately where? Into the temple. He comes to the heart of the faith community. The lights are out. It's late. The offices are closed. No one's home. And yet he goes into the temple and it says that he looked around at everything. He comes to the temple after hours and he looks around at everything. Why? Jesus, why are you coming here? Why the temple? Because friends, this is the focus of his visit. 
You got to get this. If we're going to understand the next several weeks of this series, you have to understand that the temple, this is ground zero. This is where he is focusing his attention. He has come to the temple and he is looking around, not as a sightseer, but as a king who has come to inspect the condition of their faith. He is here to inspect the quality of their worship. So he's looking around at everything. And let me pause for a moment because I just wonder, as Jesus inspects the heart of their faith, as he inspects the quality of their worship, I just wonder, could we for a moment silently pray, Lord, inspect me. As Jesus looks around, leaving no stone unturned, would we allow him to look at everything in our hearts, to examine the state of our souls and to speak to us? Can we say, East Point Church, that nothing is off limits right here? Let's pray Psalm 139, right? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Lord, examine our hearts, reveal and remove anything that competes with you. In Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus comes into the temple and he's looking around at everything and we get this sense of foreboding. It's about to go down. So he leaves. He goes, right? Remember he's saying he has an Airbnb outside of town across from the Kidron Valley. He's on the Mount of Olives in Bethany. He goes out to his Airbnb. He's coming back the next morning and as he comes back, we realize that he was hungry. They didn't have a Starbucks drive through on the commute. There was no Chick-fil-A to stop at. And so he does what you would normally do on your community. He looks for trees. And as he looks around, as he's hungry, he sees a fig tree and it's giving the appearance of fruitfulness. It's in leaf. Any tree lovers in here? You're like, no, I like Westerns. That's cool. All right. But in a tree that is in leaf, it's giving the appearance of fruitfulness. It's in leaf. And Mark, as he's explaining to non-Jewish readers here, he gives us a little bit of commentary. He goes, hey, that's weird. Because guess what? It was not the season for figs. And so we're, it's September now, right? In a a few short weeks, the leaves are going to start falling off the leaves, or leaves falling off the trees, right? They change their color. They fall. How many of you know that one tree that long after all the leaves have fallen, there's that one tree who's making it a competition, right? You guys have that tree in your neighborhood, right? All the leaves are down, and that one tree's like, not me. Look how long I can hold my leaves, right? And it stands out because it's odd. In the same way, this tree is standing out because it's not even the season yet, and yet it has blossomed blossomed its leaves early. The tree stands out because even though it's not fig season, it is giving the appearance of life and fruitfulness. If trees could talk, which they can't, Trust me, if trees could talk, they would scream from far away, I am fruitful, I can feed you, I have fruit. But upon closer inspection by a hungry Jesus, the tree is found to have nothing but leaves. All smoke, no fire. All appearance, no substance. The tree was actually barren. And it turns out that its appearance was quite deceptive. And so, friends, why are we talking about trees this morning, right? How many of you came to, to church going, I'm just going to, can't wait to get my botanist on, right? 
all my inner arbor lovers out there. You just, why are we talking about trees? Why are we talking about Jesus' breakfast menu? You have to understand, this series, everything that's happening in, this, in these few chapters of Mark, everything is filled with prophetic significance. Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem, not as a sightseer, but as a prophet with a message. And so he sees a prophetic illustration. He uses it to teach his disciples a timely lesson. This right here, Jesus sees a living parable so that his disciples would never forget. Jesus is far more concerned with the substance than with the appearance. Because after all, friends, the appearance of fruitfulness can be deceptive. And so Jesus pronounces a judgment on the tree. He says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And it says the disciples, they heard it. The disciples take note of this. And you should too, because we're going to come back to the fig tree. And so why does he curse the tree? When I was preparing for my message this week, I, I actually read, there are some scholars out there. And they're not like evangelical scholars. They're more of like, uh, they study the Bible as if it's just literature. And I saw several scholars point to this as evidence for like, see, Jesus was just a man. Jesus got hangry too. Jesus was stressed out. And, and I even saw one scholar said, if Jesus had that supernatural power, then why didn't he just make figs instead of condemning the tree? And just hogwash, right? I told them as much. I wrote them letters. Every last one of them. I said, you're wrong. Why are you wrong? I didn't write them a letter. I didn't have their address. Otherwise, I would have. But why are they wrong? Because they're not reading the Bible in context. If you're reading the book of Mark in context, you realize this is so much more than about a tree. This is a moment that is filled with prophetic significance. This is another symbolic action making a prophetic statement. And so what's his point? What's the statement that he's making in this parable? Well, we find out as we keep reading. Verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written... My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And so Jesus shows up in the temple at Passover. And so we need to understand a little bit of background here for the Passover, right? Jews from all over the nation, Jews from all over the ancient world, once a year, they would make a pilgrimage. They would make a trek to Jerusalem to participate in the ceremonial sacrifices, right? To celebrate the Passover. And so if you're a Jew coming from Rome, if you're a Jew coming from Sidon, right? Like it would be a little bit difficult to bring your sacrifice with you on the road. You know what I'm talking about? They don't have a, a, a fanny pack large enough to fit your pigeons and your oxen. Okay, and so no, no problem, no matter. We, we've they've actually created a system to help with this, and so all you need to do is worry about getting here. You get here to Jerusalem, you get here to the temple, and once you arrive in the outermost plaza of this this massive temple complex, you can do a couple things. Number one, you can exchange your money. 
because your Roman currency, we don't use that in the temple of the Lord, right? We need to convert it to the closest thing we have to the Hebrew shekel. So you come in, you, you arrive at this giant complex, and the first thing you do is you exchange money. Has anyone exchanged money in the last few months? I just exchanged money for the first time this past spring. I went to Germany. Do you know that that is a business? Like, maybe I'm naive. I didn't know. Exchanging money is like a business. It's not, I thought it was math. Math doesn't change. One dollar, one year, whatever the currency is. But the rates can be different from day to day. There's actually a market because people are trying to make money off of it. So that's the first thing. They're exchanging money. After you exchange your money, you can then go into the little shopping plaza and you can buy yourself a kosher sacrifice. And just like the Queenstown's outlets, friends, there is a high-end sacrifice and a low-end sacrifice. Come on, you know what I'm talking about. There's a Louis Vuitton kosher sacrifice and there's a Sam Cassis Payless sacrifice. You see, in the Old Testament, God wanted everybody to be able to worship. And so he created a situation where he said, hey, give an oxen, Right? And if you can't afford that, just give a pigeon. Whatever it is, participate. I remember the first time I was living here on the shore a couple years ago, and somebody invited me to buy a cow with them. Have you ever? Yeah. You want to buy a cow? I said, I'm not about that life, bro. Buying a cow? but Because cows are expensive. You could buy an entire animal and break it up into pieces, right? And so if you were wealthy for celebrating the Passover, you wanted to roll deep with your, with your sacrifice. You'd buy an oxen. But for those of us who couldn't afford it, you can buy a pigeon, okay? This is the system in the temple. Imagine a massive flea market and the Sadducees, the wealthy Sadducees, were the ones responsible for supervising this entire operation. All right, that's the background. So when Jesus walks into the bazaar, when he walks into the flea market, when he sees the money changers and the pigeon sellers, he's not impressed. He loses his mind. How many of you are like my dad, where when you're watching a movie and the bad guy starts to get away, you start talking to the TV, right? Like, I do not. Your wife's like, yeah, you do, right? Like, my dad was the worst, right? He'd be like, get him! Like, he's literally standing up, talking. He's so triggered by injustice that he literally rises up and he's screaming at the bad guy, all right? And if you're here this morning, it's okay. It's okay. I love my dad and I love you too. But that's what's happening in Jesus in the presence of injustice as he witnesses corruption in 4K right in front of his face. His blood starts to boil. His sense of injustice is triggered and he rises up with a righteous anger. And he does something about it. It says he overturned the tables of the money exchangers. He saw the rates that they were charging to exchange money. He saw how they were exploiting people and he flipped their tables. He walks by and he sees the price of the pigeon. Who is the pigeon supposed to be for? And he sees those who are selling the pigeons and he flips their chairs. He brings the entire market to a screeching halt and with all eyes on him, With everyone's shocked attention, he explains his problem. He says, this whole thing was supposed to be about prayer. But the temple leaders aren't promoting prayer. They're turning a prophet. With righteous anger, he says, temple leaders aren't promoting prayer. They're turning a prophet. Do you realize 
how special the temple was supposed to be. If you just picture the temple, like the outlets or the mall, you, you may not really understand this. You go, it's just business. That's just the way it is. People will always be like that. And you just, you don't get it. But when you understand that the temple from its inception was designed to be a place of prayer for all nations. The temple was designed to be a place that people from all over the world, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their religious backgrounds, regardless of what corner of the planet they come from, they could come here and connect with God. This is a place where people from all over could gather with God's people and see his unrivaled glory as they learn about his redemptive acts in history. This is the place where they would learn about how wise God was as they read his wisdom literature. This is a place where they would realize just how good he is, especially compared to the, to the, the gods of this world, how good he is when they saw his ethics and his codes of conduct. Friends, this was a place where people could come and feel close to the God of the universe when they realized that he condescended and chose to house his glory right here on the other side of the curtain. The temple. This was God's plan. This was a place where people would come and they would have their minds blown and they go, where else in the world has a God seen fit to make his home in the middle of his people? This is bananas. And they would turn from their fake idols and serve the one true living God. This is a place that was meant to promote worship. And Jesus is torn up. Because the Sadducees, their heart and their motivation is not about helping people connect with God. This has stopped becoming about facilitating worship. And instead, they are now facilitating a business. Because get this, guys. These opportunists have realized just how lucrative the temple worship industry could be. They realize how much money could be made off of exchanging money. They realize how much money could be made off selling pigeons. You ever go to a baseball game? How many baseball fans here? Baseball or football? You ever been in a stadium? Okay. Have you ever seen a picture of a stadium? Somebody, please. Okay, thank you, right? Have you, do you know how to spell stadium, right? So you go to a stadium and, and you're hungry, right? And, and you say, I'm going to go up for a hot dog, you know, and you get to the front of the line. And you go, man, you know, it's been a little bit tight. I can't afford a lot, so I'm just going to take one hot dog. And the guy goes, that'll be $34.99. I'll take half a hot dog. You know, and you're just like, you just want to start flipping the hot dog carts here. This is price gouging. And they go, where else are you going to go? Brought my own hot dog, you know? Like, that's what's happening here. They have these people coming into town and they're price gouging. They're exploiting people. And notice how it points out the pigeons specifically, because there's a point there, specifically exploiting those who already couldn't afford it. You're making it hard to worship God. He sees the prices of pigeons and he flips their chairs. They know they want to worship. They know the people can't go anywhere else. And so they have turned this place into a den of robbers. In the name of worship, they are exploiting people. And Jesus finds it gross. He finds it gross. As people flood into town, they don't see people coming to worship. They see a market for making a profit. And so Jesus, he's here and he sees the greed. 
He sees the hustle. He sees the bustle. And he doesn't find any more sense of holiness or sacredness or prayerfulness than you would find at the New York Stock Exchange. It's all business, baby. You thought the tree was deceptive. (laughs) You thought the tree was deceptive. They have all the motions of worship right here. They have all the fabrications of worship and prayer and temple. And yet Jesus says, your hearts are far from me. Upon closer inspection, the one who has come looking for fruit has found none. Church, not everything labeled faith is fruitful. Not everything labeled religion is alive. We have to wrestle with this passage, especially as a church, right? I mean, we, we have a sense of organization, right? We have a budget. We are a 501c3 nonprofit. We have a board of trustees, right? Like, there are businessy operational things that happen here. And so is that bad? Should we never exchange funds? Should we never, like, are those, is that what Jesus' point is? I remember um, once I was growing up and we did a fundraiser um, at our church, you know, for our youth group. And we weren't allowed to do the fundraiser under the roof. We had to step outside into the parking lot because this is not a house of of selling. It's a house of prayer, right? And so it's like, I'm not making fun of them saying that was our thought. Yeah, no, no business in the church. But that's not what he's talking about here. There is organization. There is structure. There are businessy operations that allow us to facilitate worship and discipleship and mission. And guys, it's been like that since Moses gave the instructions for the tabernacle, right? There was staff, hello, full-time staff in their tabernacle. There was a budget. They collected funds. So we know that that's not the problem. Operations and business admin is not the problem. The problem is this, when we confuse the means with the ends. Are our business operations a means to facilitate worship and advance the mission? Or are people's desire to worship God an opportunity to create a business? Are people's desire to come closer to the God of the universe an opportunity to capture a market and now exploit people? As Jesus flips the tables, we realize that this king has come to confront the emptiness of the religious establishment of his day. He's at the temple. He's at the seat of religious leaders to expose the fact that God is not worshipped in this place. The leaders to whom he has entrusted his sheep are just playing temple. And as the king arrives, he signals, game over. And so the leaders, they're hearing him. They're observing this, right? But they don't follow him as a teacher. They fear him as a threat. Jesus shows up and he's challenging the status quo. He threatens their power. He's risking their way of life. The crowd is listening to Jesus. Hello, who do we want them listening to? They are astonished at Jesus' teaching. But these leaders, they don't like that. They want them listening to them. Jesus is disrupting the system of my life and I don't like it. And so I will seek to destroy him. Friends, Discipleship 101 here. Jesus will disrupt the status quo of your life. Jesus will disrupt the system that you've created and the game that you're playing. When you allow King Jesus in, he's not moving in as a guest. He's taking over as the king. 
And if you are more aware of what you might lose if you let him in charge than what you will gain when he rules and reigns, you're living a life of fear. You may be living a life of dead religion and seek to destroy his voice, his influence, and his message in your life. Day one. (laughs) This is just the first day of his visit to Jerusalem. It's going to be a long week, somebody, right? Wait till you see how it ends on Friday. And so at the end of the first day, Jesus and the disciples, they head out for the evening. And as they come back the next morning, Jesus makes his final point. Check it out. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. We're back on the morning commute, and we stop at the fig tree. And they see that the fig tree has withered away to its roots. And Peter, he may not be a botanist, but Peter is alert here. And he goes, oh, Jesus, whoa, that's not normal. Jesus, the tree that, the tree that you confronted is now completely out of commission. Friends, in the book of Mark, this is what we call a Mark sandwich. Remember, he introduces a theme here. He he concludes with the same picture here. And just like your favorite sandwich, the point is in the middle. The point of the sandwich is in the middle. The point of the fig tree is in the middle. So let's see if you're paying attention. What's the point of the fig tree? What does the fig tree symbolize? What is it reminding us of? Just as the fig tree gave the appearance of fruitfulness but was barren, so too the temple has the appearance of worship but lacks fruit. Just like the fig tree, the temple is going through the motions. It's giving the appearance of godliness, but their hearts are far from God. Friends, the temple has become defunct. The system is fruitless. The religious leaders are faithless. And just as the tree withered away when confronted, not just like withered in the leaves, you know, like Peter can be like, yo, tree, you look a little thin on top with your leaves, man. Get that checked. No, it was withered away to its roots. This tree was done and taken out of commission. In the same way, the temple system will soon wither away under the judgment of God when Jesus is done confronting and exposing its corruption. He says, you see the tree? Wait till you get to chapter 13. And so why does Jesus use this visual aid? Why such a dramatic illustration and parable here? You see, Jesus needs his disciples to know, Jesus needs you to know, friend, that he exchanges dead religion for a living faith. Jesus is going to such an extreme, he is making it so clear. He is drawing a difference between the broken temple system and himself because he wants you to know there is a great difference between the religious establishment of his day and the faith that he's calling people to. You get it? 
He's confronting, he's condemning these religious leaders because he wants you to understand that something greater than the temple is here, something greater than these religious leaders is here. He is going to to separate himself, to distance himself from that so that you and I could understand he's not calling us to continue in dead religion. He's calling us to follow him in a living faith. And a living faith is a life of prayer. In contrast to the dead religion of a prayerless temple, he's calling you and me to a living faith of a prayerful life. And a living faith is a life of prayer. He says here, have faith in God. Is your primary posture toward God faith? Do you believe him? Do you trust him? In contrast to the scribes who respond to Jesus in fear of what it means for their own power. He says, no, have faith in God. Come and relate to me with the confident conviction that nothing can stop my will. Come and relate with me with such a strong conviction that even the mountains, metaphor here, even the greatest difficulties in your life is not too difficult for him. And the greatest evidence of this confident conviction is when you ask for it in prayer. Prayer is the evidence of faith. When my child comes up and says, Daddy, can you please help me? He is revealing that he has a great confidence that his daddy loves to help him, and so he doesn't mind asking for it. Prayer, asking for help in the face of these mountains is evidence of faith. Listen to this. Faith confronts the mountain in God-reliant prayer, not in self-reliant climbing. People who have a living faith, people whose spirituality is alive, when they confront the mountains, they don't engage in self-reliant climbing, but in God-reliant prayer. We believe that God is bigger than the mountains. And so we ask him. We don't take it into our own hands. You see, a self-reliant man believes that the mountains will be moved by him, but a faith-filled man understands that the mountains will be moved for him. He's asking in prayer. He knows it will be done for him. Ask God in confident faith that what you're asking for is not beyond the ability of the one you're asking. The one who prays without doubt in his heart, it will be his. It's as good as done. That's how confident you are. Pray with faith. And then notice what he says here, right? And this is important because I'm all about context. Whatever you ask in prayer, if we pull this verse out of context and we start our own religion, I call it the genie in a lamp religion, right? We take out this verse and we go, whatever I need, and we rub the lamp and we go, God, I need this. God, I need this. And we just start like wishing our will into existence. That's called the genie in the lamp, not Jesus on the cross, okay? The genie in the lamp says, you have to do whatever I said because look, whatever you, you said, whatever. Context. Jesus has already taught us how to pray. And what does he say? Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Not my will, but yours be done. Friends, this verse is not a blank check for your will. It's an invitation to pray boldly for his will. And when you ask anything in his name, for his ends, for his glory in prayer, be confident it's as good as done. 
because God loves to do his will in response to the prayers of his people. And so a living faith, not dead religion, a living faith prays with faith, but it also requires that we pray with forgiveness. You see, when you're connecting with God in prayer, you may, in that moment, in the quiet of your prayer life, in the recesses of your soul, you may realize that you have something. As you connect with God, you may realize that you have something with someone else. Okay, and that makes sense, right? Our relationship with God and others is meant to be so integrated. That's the way God designed us as humans. How can you love your father who's invisible and not be cool with your brother who's visible, right? Like six of the commandments have to do with how we relate here, four, how we relate here. It's all connected. And so don't be surprised that as you're connecting with your father in heaven, you may become aware of some bitterness, some resentment, some unforgiveness with somebody this way. And so in that moment, here's what a living faith does. It forgives. But Sam, you have no idea what she said to me. Oh, you have no idea what he did. Can you, but what they did could be on a TV show. Oh my, if you just knew. I don't know the details, but Jesus does. And he says, if you're going to have a living faith, a vibrant connection with God in heaven, not a dead religion, a living faith, then you need to stop sending the debt collection notices to your brother. You need to come to a place where you stop sending the debt collection notices to your sister, reminding them of what they owe you, and instead send them another notice saying, it has been paid in full by a third party, and his name is Jesus. I will no longer hold this debt over your head. It's finished. He says, forgive. You see, our entire relationship with God is founded on grace and forgiveness. And so how can we stay connected to God based on grace and forgiveness if we are withholding grace and forgiveness this way? Keep the grace and forgiveness flowing from you so that the grace and forgiveness can keep flowing toward you. That's what Jesus says, forgive. Don't damn it up. Don't damn the river of grace so that your Father in heaven may forgive you. Because when you damn it up this way, you damn it up this way. Living faith. Not dead religion, not empty establishment. This is a living faith. And so I just imagine the disciples, right? The temple, this is, this is bigger than anybody. This is huge, the temple. And yet Jesus is here telling them that the temple system is broken. The religious leaders are greedy hypocrites. And so what are you supposed to do? Where am I supposed to meet God? What options do I have if I've been hurt by religious leaders? What options do I have if the establishment has failed me? And Jesus says to them, hey, there's good news. Yes, the temple is broken, but there's a new temple. There's a better temple. Friends, there is a new place where people from all nations can come and connect with God and see his glory. There is a new spot on this planet where all the other nations of the world can come and learn of his redemptive acts in history and see the goodness of his ethic and the wisdom of his ways. There is a new temple where sins could be atoned for. There is a new temple where people can come close to the God of the universe and realize that he condescended and he's in the midst of his people. Jesus is the better temple. 
Jesus is the place where you and I could come to worship God. Just as the temple of old, all the shining glory of God has made himself dwell in Jesus Christ. And Jesus says to you this morning, follow me in living faith. Follow Jesus in living faith. You're here this morning and religion falls short. Follow Jesus. When leaders fail you, follow Jesus. When others' faith seems fake, follow Jesus. When you're hurt by the church, follow Jesus. When you're tempted to settle for just going through the motions of of dead religion, follow Jesus. Jesus has come to kill dead religion so that you and I could follow Jesus in living faith. Let's pray. Lord, we see you, God. We hear you loud and clear. We see your indictment of dead religion. And God, we want nothing to do with it. Save us from going through the motions. Save us from our own hypocrisy. Lord, we repent of selfish religious activity. Lord, we want to be a place, our our lives, our, our person, we want to be people that are focused on prayer and connecting with God. We want to be a community where people can come near and connect with God. Lord, would you protect us, protect our elders, our leaders, our staff. May we never confuse the means with the end. And Father, I pray for every person here that we would become allergic to dead religion that just as Jesus flipped tables, Lord, that we would flip all the tables and chairs in our lives that need to be flipped upside down so that we can come back to what really matters. It's knowing you and making you known. Father, would you, as you examine the temple, examine our hearts and whatever you find, give us the courage to respond accordingly. We love you, Father, and all of God's people said, amen. We want to thank you again for joining us for this week's sermon podcast. My name is Daniel, and I'm the music and creative pastor here at East Point Church. And if you were challenged, encouraged, or impacted in any way by this week's sermon, we would love to hear about it. It's your stories that encourage us and what we do, and we just want to celebrate what God is doing in your life. So you can go ahead and share with us at podcast at epeaston.com. Also, make sure that you subscribe to our channel to stay up to date with the latest sermons. Have a great week.